how you use them. T-minus three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Welcome, hello, welcome to the BizDoc Podcast. We're rolling this morning. We got a lot of things for you to help entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, and leaders around the world get more out of your day, get more out of your business, and see if we can leave you better than we found you. I'm Tom Ells with The Biz Doc, and I'm here this week with Malik, the famous Rob G from the PBD podcast, walking across the hall, give us a hand, while the wonderful Swiss Army knife Kellyanne has the week off for some family things. Boy, a lot going on here today. Uh, Rob will have a couple um, questions coming out of Super Chat. Love to ask those. Ask the BizDoc. We'll be doing no right at the end. But um, kind of a wild week. No banks died or anything, but uh, it was kind of an interesting weekend. Memorial Day over. Everybody's kind of into the spring, you know, business rhythm. You know, the weather is pretty good. People are traveling and uh, business is rolling. How are you? What's going on, Malik? How are you doing? I'm doing well. How was your weekend? Actually, it was very, very good. You know, I, uh, you know, took uh, took my daughter to a Marlins game. That was kind of good. Bailey, the golf girl, the stats geek, took her down to the game. That was kind of fun. Mother's Day celebrated uh, the BizDoc babe yesterday. We made her dinner and everything. You know, made her made her crabs. She loves crabs, so we went and got real king crab legs, boiled them up for her. She was very happy. Sounds like you? a nice little Sunday. How about me? Uh, I did yard work all weekend long. So that was it. I just yard work, yard work, yard work. Do you find that satisfying? Um, no, because it's not done yet. When it will be done, it will be satisfying. But right now, the actual process of it's very tedious. And when you're renovating an entire backyard, you know, there's steps to it. And you don't really see much done yet in the initial steps. But I feel like the payoff will be worth it. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, most people don't know that the BizDoc details his own cars. Uh, I had a surfboard uh, repair business. It was my very first business, but I also would detail cars kind of on the side. A lot of the same equipment, buffers and things involved. But I love detailing my own cars because for me, I'm out there, I'm thinking, it's very cathartic. And then I step back and I look at the finished result and I say, wow, that's really great. And although you got to find the hours to do it and everything, and I, I, have, I have Brooker, the soccer freak, um, who usually helps me out and everything. But um, when I do things like that, you know, I've never had a green thumb like yard work, but when I do something like that at home, it always feels really good to step back, look at the finished product. Yeah, I enjoy it because it's a good bond. My father lives an hour north of me, so it's a good bonding experience for my father, myself, and my 12-year-old to go out and work on those things together and teach. Now I'm learning things about, because it's my first home that I've ever bought. So I'm learning how to renovate sprinkler systems and fix them, and I'm able to learn those from my father while teaching it to my son at the same time. There you go. That's kind of fun. Rolling with that. So let's roll into it. There's a lot of people out there that uh, maybe not being doing yard work, but certainly doing company work and building your companies. And all of these things that I found, uh, as I found some time late yesterday on Mother's Day to kind of go through this, got back from the game, was looking at it. Very interesting stuff that's up here. Uh, remember, Jerome Powell is raising the interest rates, and we just had interest rates raise a quarter of a point, which means now we're at 5% to 5.5%. And by the way, Inflation is edging down, and by the way, the end of May, early June, we may have a 5% to 5.5% Fed rate, and inflation rate actually under that. If inflation can manage to get to like 5.24, right now it's hovering around 6, 
the lines would cross. And so, as they say, maybe Jerome Powell's work is completed at that point. And you already heard my forecast. I think it's going to be a flat summer. And then we're going to see um, recessionary signals up there and then get a little relief on housing values and number of homes that are selling, followed by, I believe, in December, we will say Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, um, or wonderful Festivus for the rest of us with a 0.25% drop. But in the meantime, what are the stats and what does it mean as we're trying to surf through the summer, have a great 23, and build your business? One of the things that came up was jobless claims. So jobless claims is a negative. Uh, it's a negative because people you know, or thanks to layoffs and other things, they're making their first jobless claim. Usually means, depending on the state, that you've been unemployed for a few weeks, and now you're putting in a claim to get unemployment support. Maybe it's a check from the state or other forms of support that are out there if you're a single mom. But there was 22,000 jobless claims. Now, that may not seem like a big number on a national United States basis, and there's clusters where that's going to be higher. That's not just... It's not like sunshine, that it kind of sunshines on everybody. Certain sectors, certain industries suddenly have it worse than others. But this is the highest total pop since 2021, when we were dead in the middle of the COVID winter. And um, it suggests that the economy is cooling. And that's what the Fed wants. The Fed wants things to calm down because inflation is driven by a hot economy, among other things. Specifically, a hot economy, if you take a look at the economy as a stove and you throw $1.2 trillion of printed money into the stove, bawoof, the stove burns hot, prices go up. We saw what everything that happened to houses, cars, and then the COVID effect, shortage of chips, drove up the price of cars too, and we had inflation, all those reasons it was out of control but the jobless claims being up means two things means number one the economy is cooling which is what the fed wants which means interest rates very likely to stay with the bizdoc forecast that in june no raise in rates further which means that as you look around at loans for your business credit lines for your business inventory lines floor planning all of that should be settling. Uh, it's been going up for a while, but so there should be a settling effect on that as you're trying to manage cash flow for your business. The other thing that's coming up is, guess what? And we're gonna see a couple other stats on this today. It may be getting marginally easier to hire people. So if you're one of the lucky businesses that is finding growth, or you're looking as this opportunity to say, if we're going into a recession, I'm gonna cut the weaker people, maybe they don't believe in my message, don't believe in my culture that I'm trying to build, that, that happens at the insurance company that Patrick Bet David founded, that I had a privilege to work with him at as a C-level executive, to come in and help scale the business and, and to be there for part of that ride. There were times where Pat made the tough decisions on people that didn't fit. Uh, now, maybe one of the times for you to find the, and make a decision for people that don't fit and to say to yourself, this weaker player, you know what, we're going to say goodbye. And I'm going to find somebody during this recession at a more moderated um, uh, salary that's fair for them, fair for me, and I'm going to strengthen my business. That's one of the things you can think about. So when you think about jobless claims, don't always think about the negative. If you're running a good business, you're running a tight ship, this is an opportunity for you maybe to make some employment shifts among the mix of your team members. Remember, it was um, there was a guy, um, I'm going to talk about more in a minute, Jack Welch, who used to say, hey, you know what? Always super reward the top, but always uh, trim the bottom every year.
Don't make exceptions. Good year, bad year, trim the bottom performers and super reward the top performers. So that's what's going on there. And so I think that's self-explanatory for your business, whatever you're doing. And if you're working for a business, now is not the time to, uh, to, to make a play unless if you know you are an absolute star performer and you've been driving it hard, now is the time to walk into your boss and say, hey, look, I know this is a tough year. I know it's a recession, but I also know that I'm busting my butt for you and I'm driving this and I'm trusting you're going to take care of me when it's over. Sometimes that is the best way to ask for a raise and then help the company drive and grow during the recession and make that little bit of profit so that the company can pay you that raise. Because any good owner, good manager, good leader is gonna remember, I remember when that person walked into my office and we were, having, we were going through pre-recession and we were going through high interest rates and a lot of things, that person walked in my office, you know what they said? I've been busting my butt and I know you can see it. And I thanked them for that. But then they said this, I really think that if we can get through this and I'm driving hard, that I deserve some reward from that. But I'm not going to hold you up right now. I just want to let you know, I want my name on the paper when it's time to look at if we had a really good year in 23 and I was the one that stayed here because I believed in the dream, I believed in the culture, and I'm here to help. That is, trust me, I've done that in my career when people have come to me and I've given them counsel to do that and then I've taken care of those people later. So jobless claims. Then, this was interesting. So speaking of jobless claims and salary, this one kind of popped up. And I think this is one that, that Malik, I think you saw this one too. Um, this was a Wall Street Journal report that they did a little survey. Um, and it was a, um, excuse me, excuse me, this wasn't the journal. This is Business Insider. Business Insider performed a survey and was interpreting a survey where they asked people living in these so-called hot cities, New York, San Francisco, saying with inflation, with what's gone on in the economy, you know, what do you need to make to feel like you can make ends meet? Not live in large, as we used to say in the 80s and 90s, but that you can make it. And then the survey data Rob, I think you may, like I said, I think you may have seen this. It was Business Insider, it wasn't the journal. I did. It was 300 grand. The people said that if they lived in San Francisco or if they lived in New York, it was 300 grand. First, before you freak out and go, $300,000? Do you know what that could buy you in Indianapolis? You know, I'm working here for this construction company doing foundations in Indianapolis. I got the greatest CEO in the world, this company. I'm loving life. But man, 300 grand? Guess what? Remember, in San Francisco, the state takes 13.3% in state income taxes. In New York, it takes like 12.5 plus a percent or two city tax. So in New York and San Francisco, with 39% federal income tax and those taxes, your last dollars, and if you're making 300 grand, it's probably your last $75,000 from 225 up, you're probably paying 52% tax on that. So when these people say they feel like they need to earn 300000 to feel like they can really make ends meet, have a reasonable apartment or townhouse or whatever it is, and just start the car in those cities, just remember this. It's some of the most taxed cities and most regulated cities in America. And so what they're really saying is, damn, it's expensive to live here. And that's probably why people are moving to other areas. But I found it was very interesting. And that's why I am... Um, I like to say this, when people say, hey, BizDoc, when you're looking to invest in a company, what are you looking for? 
Are you looking for, you know, you know, operating costs that are super efficient? What are you looking for? Are you looking for offshore? And I'm like, really, I'm not looking for either. But I'll tell you, it, you do look at companies that are in high tax, high cost areas. Because you're saying, you know, your labor cost is going to be really high. But if you're in frontline advertising, maybe you have to be in New York. You got Madison Avenue. Long has been the, 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 the tremendous factory of fantastic advertising and people that know what they're doing there. But it's kind of been more distributed. If you're in Silicon Valley, it's always thought, well, if I'm going to have a Silicon Valley company and you're down here in, in the tech area, the China Basin area of um, San Francisco, maybe you need to be there to attract the talent. But that talent is expensive. So yes, I've looked at where, where companies are headquartered and what labor costs that they're, that they're under because I see it as a headwind. Take a look at this, a company in Austin, Texas, you've got a lot of good tech there, University of Texas, Austin, a lot of interns, things are going on there. Thriving city, South by Southwest, if you go there, you see all sorts of great technology companies showing their wares and doing panels and, and doing demos there at South by Southwest. Then you look at the Bay Area, and I look at that and I go, wow, would I rather invest in a company in the Bay Area or Austin? Well, you can't always pick and choose investments you make that way. If it's a great company in the Bay Area or in California, it's a great company. Um, you know, Valuetainment Investment Groups, we invested in a phenomenal uh, company in Southern California uh, last year. You know, it, do they have a labor issue that they have in California versus other areas? Sure they do, but it was a great investment opportunity. But I'm also noticing that the OPEX weight on companies that are not in these high dollar area actually helps them make their investor dollars go longer, the burn rate go farther, which might be important, oh, hypothetically, if we're in high inflation and about to go into a recession, or uh, we've got a struggling economy trying to find its way, real estate, commercial real estate going down. Oh, you mean now? You know, that now? And there's a word for now, and the word is damn. Remember, my case studies used to say that all the time. You know, this is exactly when the, the startups and the early stage companies that are in more moderated uh, cost of living areas are going to have an advantage. And so, yes, I look at the area, but you can't overlook a great company. But 300 grand per year for New York and San Francisco, that's a big number, man. That's a big number. You know, for, you know, I'd be willing to say if you were looking for, you know, a senior VP of marketing for that at a mid-sized company in those cities, you could probably get that person for 200 in Austin, Texas, and you'd be paying fair rate for that. And they don't have state income tax. So 200 in Austin, Texas is like 240 in Southern California, 250 potentially in Manhattan. So got to remember where the dollar goes. But 300 grand, boy, that was just shocking survey. And it's like, well, where do you find those jobs? If not, they leave the area. And we've certainly seen migration. Um, so speaking of salaries, um, Rob, did you see this? Uh, Microsoft? CT CEO, we all know him, you know, Nadella, looks into the camera and basically says, get ready because we are trimming hard the budget for bonuses and stock awards. And for some of you, there will be no raises. So mighty Microsoft has spoken up and said, 
unless you are part of the very few, you will not get exceptional co compensation raises. And exceptional was like five or six percent. That's exceptional. <laughs> that sounds like a damn good raise when, unless inflation is chasing you at that amount or higher. And in, in that case, you're on a treadmill. You're running in place. You got a five percent raise and five percent inflation. Congratulations. The game is tied. You know, you got nothing that year. It's like, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not working. I'm not driving. You know, I remember my emerging career in my in my 30s. You know, I, I wasn't looking to just you know, tie game at the end of the year, I wanted to build up. Well, no raises at Microsoft. So what's, what's really interesting to me about this is the following, um, is that, does this sound like Jack Welch to you? Because Jack Welch used to say, good times are bad, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, bottom 20%, no raises, and have a plan to move them out of the organization. Or if they're a great person, but they're not performing well in your, in your department, find a department where they can. But don't, pay, don't play the game of pass the turd, right? If somebody's not doing well, by the way, that's what it's called, pass the turd. You don't want to take somebody, well, I don't want to lay them off because I don't want them to, you know, I don't want to lay them off through eliminating a job and fake it, or I don't want to fire them because I don't want them to make a claim against me and I have a spotless record. That is political manager, corporate manager, baloney. That's not the way to do it, but that's the way people used to do it. Jack Wells said, uh-uh, I wanna know if they can fit in another department where they will excel, move them. Otherwise, have a plan to move them out of the company and let them go work somewhere else. And then, for the top performers, good times or bad, you know what Jack Wells used to say? Feed them, feed them. You know, take care of those people. You know, let those dogs eat and make sure they know how valuable they are and make sure they see that you have a plan for the lower ones. And by the fact, you coach them into saying, hey, you know, you're a top performer, but you're not gonna have the top performer review unless you take care of person number seven. And you know who I'm talking about on your team. And top performer said, I already have a plan. This is what we're doing, beginning of third quarter. They are done. They will finish this project. We do need them to finish that, but they're not up to where we want, out of here. And that's where Welch would say, I will see you in January for your talking about your raise. It was very simple. People say it's ruthless. No, you don't run a, a company to have a nonprofit. You know, that's not that's not the point here. You don't run a company to have a, to run it as a nonprofit, which is exactly what Elon Musk said when he came into Twitter. Oh, I just bought a 40 some billion dollar nonprofit. And then later we find out after he laid off 80 percent, he says, you know what, to run a to run a text messaging company at scale on a global basis, I don't exactly need all those people. And I don't need 10 different departments that are working on you know, responding to, you, to um, political parties, asking for people to be canceled, or, or actively running our own theory on freedom of speech torn up out the window, and we're just gonna cancel who we want so that we line up with this ideology and that's our culture. Elon Musk says, no, that's not what we're doing. This is all the people I need. So you, businesses are not a nonprofit. Just like Elon Musk says, I'm driving to profit. And now he's hired somebody that has an, a background in advertising. Similar to when Mark Zuckerberg hired, hired Sheryl Sanders to come over and run what? Advertising monetization for Facebook. How did that turn out? Tens of billion dollars later. Pretty good. That's where it is. So 
Microsoft, people are saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And I read some, some comments after it. And I'm like, who are you people? You know, B. Ehrlichson, you know, don't put your full name there because people see it. They're going to say, you're not with the program. Don't self-identify that way. So I think the moral of the story is if you're running a business and you've got your own small business and you're doing something, if you come to a part right now where, you know, you have to limit raises, but you got to take care of your stars, do it. And by the way, it, what appears it's happened at Microsoft and it's like, my, 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 I guess the looming recession crushes entitlements and brings out the capitalist, even inside Microsoft located in Seattle, not exactly a conservative city, um, although the low tax rates in Washington have always been good for business, but um, certain other things certainly, certainly haven't been. So don't forget to feed your stars even when it's tough times. And as I talked about, we're looking at those jobless claims. Now may be the time to optimize your workforce. What's going on? So that moved me as I was looking forward into a another article I found, which was pretty cool. And it was, you know, put together after a careful study was done on generations, meaning baby boom backwards to Gen X, baby boomers. Now the youngest boomers now are 58 to 60 right now. Um, so boomers are heading into their 60s. Gen X is 42 to about 57, 58 today. Millennials are about 26 years old to about 41 today. So call it 25 to 40. That's your core millennial. Having kids, discovering responsibilities, we hope. Not coming home to live on the couch, we hope. And then, of course, Gen Z, aged 16, they have jobs. Age 16, they can work legally and to 25. And what was very interesting about this is there was a, um, a survey that was done talking about job security. And so as long as we're talking about job losses, raises, and things like that, I dug up something that I think is going to be pretty interesting to talk about here. And um, Malik, can we pop that chart up? There's a, um, there we go. That's it right there. Perfect. So take a look here. So what they did is they looked for this survey and they asked people, how worried about you are with job security right now? And on a national average, People said, well, about 53% of the people said, I'm not really worried about job security at all. And about 27%, I'm slightly worried. 15% said, I'm somewhat worried. And 5% said, I'm extremely. That was nationwide. So nationwide, it says, hey, even though there's a recession company coming and you know inflation has been tough and there's been a lot of layoffs, 53% of America said that they are not worried at all. And 27% said they were only slightly worried. So that's basically 80%. Wow, everything's great. Wrong. Wrong. We dove in. In this, in this survey, they dove in. And now we're going to dive in. Take a look at this. The boomers, and if you're driving or you're listening to this audibly, I'll take you through this way. I'll just read you the chart. The boomers, 82% of them said, I'm not worried at all. And 13% said, I'm slightly worried. And only 6% said, oh, man, I'm, you know, I'm somewhat or extremely worried. 82%. So the boomers are feeling pretty good on the edge of retirement with wherever they're working about job security. Gen X, you know, the kids of the boomers, 
42 to 60 years old, a little bit, 42, 58, something like that. So you got your sending kids to college, kids are getting fully grown. 48% of them said that they were not worried at all, less than half. Well, wait a minute, I thought the national average was 53%. This is how broad surveys on a national basis can lie to you accidentally. It's the boomers at 82% not worried at all about job security that were driving up the chart. When you get to Gen X, 48% of them said, I'm not worried at all. Millennials, only 37% said, I'm not worried at all. And then Gen Z, 16 to 25, only 25% I'm not worried at all. So it was almost like 10 points. 25, 35, 45, it was almost like that going from Gen Z, millennials, to Gen X. Very interesting. Now, only slightly worried, millennials and Gen Z were at 37%. And Gen X, only 29%. So Gen X, they ended up being 77%, were not worried at all, or only slightly worried. But... It was only 64 when you get to millennials, and it was 52 when you get to Z. What was very interesting is when you get to Gen Z, 37% were fairly worried, some extremely worried according to the survey. And the millennials, it was 25%. And I sat and I looked at it, and it really said something to me. And what it said to me was, wait a minute. So you're telling me that all the Gen Z millennials that want to work from home, that went and held their boss hostage for a higher, remember we were talking about this on the PBD podcast, how many times did we dive into information about this? Working from home. Countless times. Yeah, and what did we find? You know, businesses that really wanted to stay in business, that needed people to work, were getting held hostage by people that wanted a, a 15 or 20% raise in the middle of COVID and to work from home and an allowance to buy biscuits for my dog who gets promoted to be my assistant at home. And it, it's like, what? And then we saw the stories about people that, that engineers had two laptops on a desk at home and they had two jobs full-time jobs, getting full-time paychecks until somebody figured it out. And then we found out another company discovered they had IT, said, hey, you run security scans just to make sure our, our laptops are safe, don't you? He said, yeah. He said, what did we find out? Remember they found out that there was 30% of their engineers, 30% of their engineers, you know, hadn't opened their laptop in three weeks? <laughs> That's a hell of a vacation. So here you've got the people, the millennials and Gen Zs, we're up there at 35 and 25% worried about their job with inflation, with recession, with tech layoffs. And you look back and say, wait a minute, what kind of an employee were you over the last two years, two and a half years, when your company was trying to surf through COVID, being told people couldn't come to work, trying to work with social distancing, running tests every day, people are positive, now they gotta go home. The last time people got together around a whiteboard to be creative was when Clinton was president. I mean, there was all kinds of things that were going on. And now these very same people are being surveyed and there's only 25% of Gen Z people under 25, recent college grads, that were not worried at all about their job, and only 37%, a little bit more than a third, of millennials up to age 40 were not worried at all. 
these lower these people in the younger generations are worried i don't want them to be worried i don't want people to be worried and i know that not all companies really treat their employees the way they should so let's talk talk about the exception let's talk about a broad-based survey across america and what does this mean for you and me if you're an entrepreneur and you're running a company it means remember your younger workers those Gen Z's right out of college, if they're doing a good job, give them extra props. Not over, not what I mean props, I don't mean raises and I don't mean freebies, but make sure you spend a little time with them to raise their assurance a little bit more about the health of the company. Because they're around a group of people in their generation where only 25% of them are not worried about job security at all. And so you need to take a look at the generations that are in your own company and be aware of what their peer group outside. Because remember, poison can start from the outside. As they say, a person goes outside, catches the flu, comes to work, everybody gets it. And that's the same way that it can happen with stressful situations. Pay attention to your Zs and millennials. And the ones that are really good, <clears throat> make sure that you, you take them to lunch once in a while. You know, just you, one-on-one. -on -one. You don't favor them, but you make sure to do little things because the generation they're hanging with, maybe their spouse, is feeling different than the Gen X or the Boomer. And as entrepreneurs, it's not enough just to hire everybody and pay them fair. It's also to read your people as you build your culture. And as you build your culture and you understand your people and what may be affecting them and their peer group, it's real. That's who they talk to on Instagram. That's who they talk to on Facebook. <clears throat> and this is absolutely real. So when you hear, wow, 50, 53% of America doesn't have any, any qualms, any concerns about their job. Remember, that survey, 82% of the boomer generation said, it's fine, I'm almost retired. And 40, it was only 48% of Gen X, only 37% of millennials, only 25% of Gen Z. And so I thought that was really interesting, especially in the face of what Gen Z and some millennials uh, foisted on their employers during COVID. Not all of them, but some of them certainly created a, um, a bit of a reputation for the rest of the generation, which I, um, and I look back at that and I'm like, you know, I look at it now um, and it's very prevalent with all the companies I'm involved with. Um, you know, what's really interesting, you look at PHP and the, the um, average age of an insurance agent there is a 35 year old Hispanic female. And I just got back from a, a major sales training conference led by Patrick and driving that company. And I'll tell you, those people were energized. So when you have the right culture, nobody's worried about it. They're all driving and feeling good. It is possible. You can do it. <clears throat> and if you want to hear more about that, I will give a plug. You should be looking up the Vault Conference and maybe taking a couple of your leaders to go rub shoulders with other entrepreneurs and business leaders just like you. And it's going to be August 30th to September 2nd, right down here at the Diplomat Hotel, 10 minutes from Fort Lauderdale Airport in Hollywood, Florida, right on the coast, just south of uh, Fort Lauderdale Airport, sunny South Florida. Come here, Patrick, and hear from some other people, including it's going to be a great interview from Tom Brady on stage with Patrick, talking about leadership and building teams. There's a whole wealth of things for you. And so maybe you bring a couple of your millennial leaders, uh, you get yourself a, a, you know, a founder's ticket, 
access uh, Patrick and things, but get some uh, core tickets and let some of your, your up-and-coming leaders show them how much you, you value them. Let them come absorb from other people. That's exactly what the vault is all about. So this is one of the ways that you can not only build people up, but you can show them the value and how you're investing in them. And you're going to these conferences to see other companies, not necessarily competitors, but other entrepreneurs and leaders and entrepreneurs driving it. And that's a great way to see it. And so we'll see you there August 30, September 2nd. And again, I'm not bringing that up as a plug. I'm bringing that up to talk about results because the people that are there talk about what they're able to do with their teams, their companies, and their trajectory. It's all real. And speaking of trajectory, that's a good word to transition into this. You know, when you build a company, Rob, what does everybody want to do? What do all these entrepreneurs want to do? I'm going to build a company and then I'm going to go make money. Yes, and I'm going to have a great big IPO on Wall Street. Yeah. And I'm going to be, you know, a king, king of the world I live in. I'm going there. Well, I want to go through some things here because there's some case studies here because there's some companies that I covered. I found this data set over the weekend that blew my mind. Now, I was aware of a couple of the points in the data, but when looked at as a full set of data, it kind of freaked me out. So a successful IPO is a dream of entrepreneurs. But after an IPO, you have to keep delivering profits on a sequential basis. Or we read about companies, hey, that thing went public and then it flamed out. You know, we've heard about those, Rob, right? Yep. You know, and we've talked about them on the PBD podcast, and you've seen BizDoc talk about them in some of my old case studies. Yep, it'll happen. Well, first of all, let's talk about what an IPO really is. And then we'll talk about what happened to some of these startups. Because what an IPO is sometimes doesn't set up the company for success. There's a, there's a kind of a, a bad outcome and a bad purpose for the IPO, even though it's all in the headlines and everything. First of all, the market wants IPOs because it wants something to sell to the next investor. And remember, an IPO is nothing more than a shiny, brand new, ripe piece of fruit, a beautiful red apple, a perfect perfect avocado, a beautiful yellow banana, just waiting for you, just perfect. That's how they're sold. Hey, I got a new one for you, and it is a delicious one. That's what they do. They're selling you those companies in the new IPO. Because the IPO is a culmination of steps. And usually, it goes like this. You're a founder. Maybe you go to an incubator, but you save 50 grand on your own. You put it into your business. You're working hard. And then you raise Series A financing. Series A, you get outside investors. Hey, this guy's got his own skin in the game. They've got the product out there. And he, she, or it, whatever you want to call yourself these days, has managed to show traction, get some additional sales. Version one of their product is out there. Series A says, I'm going to bet on those. I'm going to bet on that person, that individual. Great. Series B comes along. Hey, we've proven it. We've got repeating sales, but we're still burning cash because we got to get the sales up to the level to cover our, our basic expenses. And we'd like to expand our sales and marketing team. Series B, more money comes in there to expand the team, the hoping and the next version of the product. You hope that trajectory continues. Then you go to Series C and you expand. And then Series D, now you've raised $50 million and you're profitable. But here's what happened each time you raise money. Let's say Malik invested in my company for Series A. And we agreed my company was worth about $5 million when he did it. 
Then Mario invests in my company as Series B, and we agreed that the company was worth 10 million. Well, Malik's happy because he's like, yes, it was worth 5 million when I invested. Mario's investing at a value of 10 million. So on paper, my shares are worth 2X. Yes! And Malik is happy and his investment you know, analysts are happy because they like the value of our investment went up. Market on paper, tell our investment committee that we're doing good. All true. Now, Siri C comes along and some folks that we know come in and they say the value of the company is now 25 million. Well, Mario's happy because he invested when it was 10. Malik is ecstatic because that's 5X when he invested when it was at five. And you see how the game goes. And then somebody comes in and says the value is 50 million. We'll invest in Series D. Mario's happy because his, he's up 2X. He was 25. The $10 million is happy because, so, excuse me, the uh, independent investor is happy at the 25. Mario was a 10. He's now up 5X. Malik's thrilled. He's up 10X. Get it? Then what happens? The IPO happens and all those investors get it sold at the stock market at a $75 million valuation. Most of them get out. So all the investors that came in during those risky early stages are rewarded and they get out. And now the company is owned in the public market with institutions and retail investors. And maybe, yes, the, invest, the professional investors, the venture capitalists, still own some for a time. Generally, they stage their exit because that's when they realize their exit. So an IPO usually does two things. A shiny object is on the stock market now and it's ready to be sold. Hey, check out the shiny apple. You need to get in on that. <clears throat> well, yes, but then all the venture capitalists get their money out. And they get it out and they're very, very happy. And that's their day of reward, or most of it if there's a little bit of a lockup period, which I'll talk about another time. But for the most part, they get a big chunk out or there's a timer on the lockout period to where they're going to get it out. So then what happens? This entrepreneur that was running around um, Silicon Valley raising money for five years, you better hope that that individual, he, she, or it, knows how to drive that business forward and knows how to talk to um, analysts. And now they're going to have a different board of directors to guide their life and their maturity as being a public company CFO and CEO bringing in a public company CFO and all the things that go with it. You better hope they can do it. Otherwise, over time, there's not a return. Well, that was the data set I went in looking at this. What if we looked at, and give me a split second, but then you see the chart, we're gonna go up here. <clears throat> what if we looked at the largest IPO offerings in venture, in venture over the last 10 years and see how they've done on the public market. And let's limit it to companies that, are, that were founded 15 years or less ago, but let's pull a sample of those. So that's what we did. So I dove into Crunchbase and I did, pulled out the data set that they were showing and then I did some of my own analysis on it. And it kind of blew me away. You know, and maybe if we can make this a little larger for folks, maybe at home and we'll look at the top half first, there we go. So take a look at this. So you go up, the recent ones are at the top and the oldest ones are at the bottom. You can see the dates there in the list of companies. So again, if you're listening to the BizDoc podcast, well, you are on the treadmill later or driving home, 
I'll describe what's here so you can follow along too. So we take a look at Rivian. Rivian that was just um, IPO November of 2021. We've all seen the Rivian trucks, good looking um, electric truck, EV. When they went out, it was $66 billion. 66.5 billion was their valuation when they went out. Now I'm counting SPACs, direct listings and IPOs because all of it means going public. So largest offerings of venture-backed companies in the past 10 years, as long as they were founded less than 15 years ago. So five years venture stage, then they went public. So we go to the recent one, Rivian, November 21. They went out at 66 billion. Today, it's trading at 12 billion, a loss of $54 billion in value. That's on the public, that's on the public. Retail investors and institutions are holding that loss. And some people in there may have made a couple bucks during like an uptick. But for the majority, there has been a net loss. Somebody lost the dollars and there's 53 billion of them that were lost from the IPO date. Toast, September of 21. Now I like Toast, I did a case study on it. And this is uh, the Square, you know, Square, the, the um, uh, you know, FinTech company originally founded as Square. Well, this is basically Square for restaurants. That's what Toast is. It's a wireless systems, wireless ordering, wireless handsets for all your servers. And they went out at 20 million and they're only trading at 9.76. Now a loss of, excuse me, 10 billion, 20 billion, trading at 9.76 billion, a loss of 10 billion. And that was September 21. Now let's go look at something much older. How about Snapchat? Boy, what a ride that was a year ago, crashing down. But they're hoping that um, TikTok gets banned, so maybe they pop up. But their IPO, March of 2017, $33 billion. Today, trading at less than $13 billion, a loss of $20 billion. And then you have this one, probably the best, Pinterest. Goes out in April of 2019, $12.66 billion. Today, it's at $14.33 billion. And you would say, wait a minute, isn't that an uptick of 1.6, 1.7 billion? It is until I tell you the following about the IPO. The IPO price is not what the retail investor gets. The retail investor gets the first traded price. And frequently companies go out for IPO and they'll say, it went out for IPO today, but immediately upon first trade, it rocketed to 24 and it doubled. Get it? Well, the, we have the BFDT, which stands for Below First Day Trading. So Pinterest is actually exactly a billion dollars below first day trading. So it's trading a little bit above its IPO price, but the IPO price isn't what you and me and everybody else saw. When it hit the market out there, it went boom, pop, and it's actually a billion under the price that you, me, and the retail investors were able to buy that day. I'll give you another one that's very interesting in that way, Snowflake. Snowflake, you know, the, um, yeah, uh, you know, you got data storage in the database company. September 2020 goes out at $33 billion. Today, the market cap is 50. Hang on. This company, when it went out on its first day, Rob, don't know if you remember this, they halted trading for volatility reasons on Snowflake's first day. And if you could go find that article, we'll pop that up to show the headline to people. 
uh, going back September 2020. Um, because first day trading was $70 billion. The market cap, when it went out for you and me, was $70 billion. And the first day trading from when it went public, where all the venture capitalists and everybody held the, the shares at that price, it rocketed and it, immediately, it did a gap jump. The, the first second that went out there, and it was so volatile, I think the price was around 247, 245 on first day for Snowflake. They halted the trading because they were worried about the excessive volatility the first day it went out, and it actually destabilized itself. But nonetheless, the IPO was 33. It may be trading at 50 now, but it was $70 billion value versus 50 now, which means that's a difference of $20 billion. So that first day when it went out, it had a total value of $70 billion. Today it's trading at $50 billion of valuation, a loss of 20. So that also tells you the joke of IPOs. IPOs go out and everybody else gets taken care of, but new institutions, brand new, buying in on first day, and retail investors, they get screwed. Everybody running for the shiny object. Another one was Airbnb, December 2020 goes out at $47 billion valuation IPO. Recent market cap is 75. However, first day trading, at the end of the first day, Airbnb was worth $86 billion. Think about that. Airbnb, IPO price 47, the market takes it at 86. You know what that means? And we'll talk about this another time. The banks blew the pricing on that and Airbnb was screwed out of billions of dollars in public funds that could have come into the company going public that day. Instead, it finishes first day trading, $86 billion valuation. Today, it's a $75 billion valuation. So the difference between first day trading, when you and I could have bought it, retail investors, and today, $11 billion. The following, I'm gonna read down the list really fast now. So as you're sitting there driving, here's your holy cow moment. Rivian, Toast, Robinhood, Bright Help, AppLovin, Coinbase, Coinbase trading $51 billion lower market cap today. Affirm, there's another FinTech company. Remember that darling, it was gonna redo credit cards and um, what do they call, buy now, pay later. You know, it's, it's down eight, almost $9 billion. Open Door, real estate company. DoorDash, we know them. Airbnb, GoodRx. Remember, we're gonna redo, we're gonna redo the pharmacy industry. We're incredible. It's trading $10 billion down. As a matter of fact, the market cap today for GoodRx is $1.74 billion, which means Tim Cook could write a check for that and still have a couple billion left over in his personal fortune if he wanted to buy a med tech pharmacy company. Uber, Pinterest, Lyft, Snap, all of this, valuation at the IPO, half a trillion dollars, 553 billion, valuation today, 319, a loss of almost a quarter trillion dollars, just under 250 billion dollars in market cap loss. So what does this tell you? Don't be so quick to to go out and dream about an IPO. Build a great business, because a lot of times you're building a small business for yourself, and those businesses are doing great, and you are driving. And when you go public, it is a whole other level of headaches. And if you're not ready to take the company public 
and deliver ever-increasing returns, you're going to have this kind of fate. Now, true, we've had some things going on in the market right now, but these gaps are massive, massive. It's not merely, well, let's get, a, let's get back from the COVID pop and let's get back into a regular market. It'll all settle down. Interest rates will go down. That'll help companies that are looking for LIBOR debt, LIBOR, the London Interbank overnight rate, which is what a lot of loans are based on, LIBOR plus X plus Y. When interest rates are up, LIBOR is up. So debt is more expensive. So you go through all these things, all that's going to settle down and stock prices are going to be back up. Really? They're going to be back up if these people have three things. Growing revenues, good gross margin, controlled OPEX. That's it. Growing revenues, good gross margin, controlled OPEX. You do all that, you get EBITDA. You do EBITDA well and you manage your taxes well, you get net income. And you get a great P-E ratio, which determines the price of your stock. How much, how much profit do you have? Really, price earnings. You know, and multiplied by the multiple by your in industry, there's your stock price, typically. Some can be overheated or, you know, suppressed. But generally speaking, that's the zone you're going to live in. And it goes up and to the right if you keep your company going up and to the right. So, really interesting. I couldn't believe that. Quarter of a billion dollars in lost value on those market caps. That's a pretty stately list to be on. You would hear that list, Malik. You wouldn't say those are like bum companies, would you? No, not at all, especially Rivian um, and Robinhood, both companies that, you know, I looked at, I have a Tesla, but I looked at a Rivian previous to that because the reviews on the vehicles were so good. And Robinhood is something that in our downstairs in the production studios for Valuetainment, I would say half of the people trade on Robinhood. So there you go. Not an endorsement from Valuetainment. However, a fact of life at Valuetainment is Mark. Robinhood enjoys a pretty good market share among the people of Valuetainment who keep their eyes on their future and are looking to invest dollars to help make that become a reality. Pretty interesting stuff. And that's, um, I'm also, you've heard me talk about EV. I have a Fisker Ocean coming. You know, I have one of the Fisker Ocean Ones, one of the launch vehicles. So I'm in the, uh, the set of serial numbers for the launches, and I'm also a Fisker investor. Um, so I... But as I said last week, I'm not endorsing it. They have to deliver a great car, score well in JD Power quality, make sure they can give you good service if you need it, and that the, the range you get out of the vehicle is what they say, 300 miles for a charge, it better be 300, better not be 250. You know, they better deliver the vehicle they say they're gonna deliver with great quality. So I'll say, I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to have one. That's a BizDoc's own decision. It's not a validation or an endorsement from Valuetainment. But I'm looking forward to it, and I'm excited for it, and I'm excited for the company. But Fisker's stock has also had some challenges since it went out as a SPAC as well. And so you got to be able to put it. So Fisker's got to put points on the board as soon as they start selling cars. Remember, revenue growing, good gross margin, OPEX under control, EBITDA, favorable tax management, there's your net income, apply it to the P-E ratio for your industry, and you should have a stock price that goes up and to the right. Well, speaking of companies, I had a question that came in last week afterwards, and they were talking about customer service. And here's the question that came in. And actually, a couple of them came in over two weeks, but it was on the same topic. It's like, hey, BizDoc, 
When it comes to customer service, I'm looking at AI. I'm also looking at people showing me 800 numbers where you could have AI uh, responding to customers and answering questions for them. What do you think about that for customer service? I don't necessarily have a lot of money for staff, and I don't necessarily want to have people in a foreign country that maybe do not know my company the way I do it. I'd rather have people that understand the culture of my company. And so I'm, I'm very concerned about this because I do need customer service. And there was another question that came out about customer service. So I decided, okay, let me dive in and do a quick biz.case study on customer service and AI and new systems. And let's find out what we turn up. So I went out there. And the first thing I, I did was, and if we can, there's a blue chart on customer service there, Malik, that uh, Kepios did. You see that one? Should be page five. Got it. Yeah. So anyway, that's the second one. Let's go to the next one. That's, that's the platforms. So anyway, I looked at it and I wanted to say, well, what do people expect for customer service? And I discovered something that just like how people felt about being comfortable, about how certain they were and comfortable they were in their job, guess what? Generations also felt all very differently about customer service. Check this out. So I looked at it and I found out that 60% of consumers felt that Facebook and 35% of consumers felt that Instagram was a good place to go for customer service. I said, great. Then I said to myself, I want to go look up the Instagram user base real quick. Who's using Instagram? And look what we found out. No surprise, 30% of Instagram users worldwide were 18 to 24, almost 31, call it 31, and 30% 25 to 34. So when you put those together, that's 61%. So 61% you know, of Instagram users are 18 to 34. And then there was a good chunk, almost 16%, that were 35 to 44. Um, but I sat back and I said, well, that's very interesting. And I dove into this a little bit more. And so I went back to the platforms. So I said, that's who's using it. So let's go to the other chart on the platforms and check this out. Very interesting. This is the platforms that are used. Here we go. Um, that brands use for customer service. And guess what? Consumers depend 60% of the time on Facebook for customer service and marketers 69% and Instagram only 35% and but 60% for marketers. So this is what it told me. It was very interesting. It told me that people 18 to 35 years old, about 60% of them would find it acceptable to go to Facebook for customer service. Now that's big, but also means that 40% wouldn't, and only 35% of them would go to Instagram. So guess what? I started diving into this, and here's the analysis I found. Customer service, if you sell shirts, and you are wanting to have good customer service, you know what? If you can't be reached and they can't reach a human, 40% of everyone, including Gen Z and Millennials, are disappointed. But if you're only selling to Gen Z and Millennials, 61% of them would say it's perfectly acceptable to have online customer service, and 60% of them would say it'd be fine if you had that through Facebook. Interesting stuff, isn't it? So what I found is that under 35 years old, 60% would almost expect a social media platform, specifically Facebook, Instagram, 
to be a place they could go for customer service. Now, YouTube was also in there for customer service, and I went in and I looked at it, but I found this out. YouTube is only good for customer service on a how-to basis. But people would watch you know, uh, videos that were on YouTube that talked about the quality of product and how it was made. No, that's not what they want. What they want to know is, here's how I replace the batteries in this child's toy. You have to pull you know, the fur off this paw of the dog, unscrew this, you can get in there and put the battery in it so that the little mechanical dog will work again. People referred to that as customer service. And 20% of the time, people said it was good that that could be on YouTube. Well, that makes perfect sense. Malik, how many times have you gone to search on YouTube for like a, a customer service thing or a how-to or, you know, how do I put this back together? One of the primary reasons I use YouTube is for some, some type of searches to how-to. Exactly. You know, uh, the BizDoc was helping the BizDoc mom and she had an issue with her dryer, but her dryer wasn't that old. But I, I typed in the model number of her dryer and the company that made it, and guess what? I had these, the appliance guy from Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I would go in there and he said, this is how you open up the back. And you can go on Amazon, just order the motor and a belt and it goes together like this. And I watched that twice and I said, that's not so bad. And I went and I looked, the motor, the motor was 80 bucks. 20 bucks for shipping and some other parts, but I ordered it. So for about 100, 105 bucks, I got this box with these parts and a motor and a belt. And remember Amazon Prime, boom, it arrived in two days. So mom was only two days without the dryer. I went back over to her house. I put it in there and guess what? Fired right up and it worked. I found out that she had found local appliance repair that sends a guy to your house who's got a truck full of parts. They had a minimum fee of $120 if it was repaired for the service call. And it's gonna be more if it takes more than an hour. So she was gonna pay 120 for somebody's time and truck, and I know they have a time and truck. To come over there, I found a customer service video endorsed by the company, and I did it myself. Not everybody is so good on how to. What was interesting about dial-in customer service where you wanna make an exchange or have something, People want a human. And guess what? Corporate America needs to get over this one, right? You know, the biggest lie, you know what the biggest lie in America has been since the year 2000? I found a survey on this. The biggest lie in America that people say they hear is the following. Please listen to this entire message because our options have recently changed. It's like, your options haven't changed in 20 years, Delta Airlines. You know, what is that crap? You know, please listen to the entire message because our options have recently changed. Baloney! That's a lie. And it, 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 by the way, it replaced the number one lie of the 80s and 90s. Yes, I'll still love you. Yes, I'll love you if you sleep with me. So, the, you know, that <laughs> lie going back to college was, was dethroned by the corporate lie on the recorded customer service line. But here's the lesson for us, for you, me, and people running a business. You know what people want? Do not lay off your Aunt Gloria with the smooth voice. She's exactly who customers over 35 want to speak to when they call your company. And we know sometimes you may have to outsource for lower cost, but if there's any way that your customer service can avoid AI and avoid um, social media for the over 35 people, do it. 
Those customers will be loyal to you. They want to speak to someone to return those shoes that didn't quite fit. They want to speak to someone with a question. And while you, you know, I understand that you say, well, customers sometimes get lazy and they just call us for answers. Okay, but you just call them a customer. And if you want to keep a customer, it's not catering to their every whim, but it is doing things to put yourself in a position so that you can meet their needs. And what's interesting about this is all customer care is not made equal, and I think you need to be smart about it. But I think the answer to the question is no, I would not automatically go to AI. I would say, how do I make my, the customer service phone call the first step in a repeat sale, which is a whole different way of looking at it. And if you let the CFO look at customer service, all they're going to see is cost, and they're going to want to move the call center offshore and do a lot of things like that. If you look at it from a how can I save costs on customer service, maybe have a product that's easy to use in the first place, maybe be sure you're selling people the right size in the first place, maybe that's you know, a good sale the first time that avoids customer service is good, but then also you know, moderating what you're doing. So there's my answer for customer service. There's a lot of facts in there, and I'm deliberately not going to a hard recommendation because everybody's business is different. Whether you're running a software company in, in uh, California or a t-shirt company in Berlin, it's all gonna be a little bit different, but I think this tells you what the customers are thinking and generations of customers think differently. There you go. So Malik, do we have any interesting questions this week? We do. Uh, I have them pulled up right here. The first question is from Jay Lee. What type of investments do you recommend? I don't have enough to invest in real estate. Well, you know, I'm not Kramer, the stock picker. And by the way, if you, um, if you follow that, there's something you can follow on Twitter. I think it's called the anti-Kramer or the inverse Kramer. It's actually an index where people have a small fund where they do the opposite of what Kramer says on TV. And I think over a two-year period, it's actually up. So, <laughs> well, here's what I would say. Right now in the market, the market's at a very volatile place. And I know folks in the equity side, that's stocks, that are telling people, stay out of things that are a little too, too volatile. Uh, you might look at things that have a good history of paying dividends. Um, you might look at at things that are consumer staples. I would not be looking at real estate right now. Uh, commercial real estate, you know, is coming down with a thud. Residential real estate, depending on the market you're in, it's a crapshoot. Prices have come down in San Diego. I'm in Oceanside, I can buy a house. How do you know it's at the bottom? You don't, and it's still way up from where it was in 2021. Maybe be careful. You know, it could be sharks in those waves offshore Oceanside. So what would I look at? I would probably look at equities, but I would look at consumer staples and long-term stable things that have a history of paying dividends. That's probably what I would think about. But I'd be very careful because some very big money managers out there are telling some very wealthy people that they are telling them to avoid stocks at this time. It might be a summer to put your cash in a money fund and get your interest and chill. Um, that may be the best answer for you. And speaking of answers, Send me your questions because I want to give you answers. And I hope I left you better than I found you every week. But what I'm doing right now, I am done for today. And I thank you for being here. Thank you, Malik, for being here. Thank you. That's a lot to chew on. I hope it was valuable. I hope 
that you get something out of it to apply to your business, whether you're a leader in a business, you're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur or you're engaged with supporting an entrepreneur, entrepreneur around the world. I hope you got something out of it today to do more tomorrow than you did today. As I like to say, I'm Tom Elser with the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than I found you. Be sure to check out Valuetainment.com. Go check out the Vault Conference and subscribe and hit the bell so you get notifications. See you next time.